Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is philosophy PhD candidate and cinephile Biel Gesu Sisman, who talks about the power of film to influence societal conversations, film's capacity for expressing her imagination and philosophical questioning, and her intentions on how to live life well through an aesthetic of experience. The life to live has to be aesthetic, aesthetic not in the sense of like just being concerned with art, but aesthetic in the sense of like being concerned with experience, how we can create better experiences, not only for ourselves, but for everyone around us. That's how I want to live with my life and mix all of that with creativity. Originally from Istanbul, Turkey, Biogesu Sisman is a writer, researcher, and film programmer with a background in the humanities. As a PhD candidate in philosophy at DePaul University in Chicago, her thesis explores the history of necroviolence, meaning posthumous corporal violence, and its formative role in modern colonial and post-colonial state power. Besides political philosophy, she specializes in film theory and philosophy of cinema. Her first feature film, Knots, which focuses on a mathematics student seeking truth in the face of repressed trauma, is in pre-production stage. She currently resides in Omaha, Nebraska, and works as the community programming manager at Filmstreams. Yogesu Sisman, welcome to Lives. Thank you. Nice to be here. In 2020, you wrote an episode for The Hollywood Insider about the early films of Yorgos Yanthimos, who later directed uh, The Lobster and The Favourite. You observed that Yanthimos questions the rituals and practices through which we learn to become human and be part of society. And I was really struck by that observation. And this is quite broad, but I wanted to expand on that observation. How do you see the potential of film to speak to us as humans about our humanity? Hard question. (laughs) The question about its influencing power, its transformative power, for me is less about having a direct let's say, affect on the way in which things are organized socially, but a way in which we get to understand how things are socialized. Because for me, art and film in specifics is a way in which artists look at the world and try to deconstruct it to then give us a new way of looking at it and understanding what's going on, whether that's coming from their own personal experience or from the experiences of the community around them. What do we think films used to be and and how do we see them now in terms of that transformative power? So when we look at the history of film in its early stages, it almost feels like an extension of photography into new technology, right? And the kind of discussions that were going on in 19th century around photography were also the discussions that were being made around like, you know, first instances of like filmed images about being able to capture quote unquote reality in its truest form right? A certain kind of like almost archive of life as it is. But even in those early times, it was obvious to makers and thinkers of cinema that what we're dealing with is not just mere representation, is not mere reproduction, but something else. Um, Later on in the 40s and the 50s, theorists have talked about the way in which the camera can actually capture something 
extra in that reality that us with our human perception cannot see. And we're not talking about any kind of like technical magic here, but about the way in which like our perception because of like the filters that it has on it, whether coming from our experiences or societal norms or any kind of like unconscious biases, we're not able to see things as they are. Not that that's ever possible anyways, but the camera has this ability to almost enhance that reality to give us back that sense of like magicalness that reality has, that kind of like intensity and depth that it has. And that's what fascinated filmmakers back then. That's what fascinated critics back then. And I think that's still what fascinates me when I engage with like film that really speaks to me. I appreciate you pointing out how filmmakers were seeing that medium. I was just wondering if filmmakers generally have always seen their medium filmmaking as a way to talk to deeper philosophical issues, or if that's something that perhaps has come later. In other words, perhaps earlier directors just saw this as a, an exciting new technology and they just wanted to entertain and make money, as opposed to have a specific commentary about society at large. There are like multiple like threads here that we can follow. On the one hand, we're talking about, you know, like a technological advancement that later becomes a certain kind of industry, right? Once everyone came to the agreement that, you know, cinema was not to just like pass on, it was not just like a little gimmick, that it was actually going to stay with us and become a new form of like entertaining the masses. Then it was about, you know, like what kind of stories can we tell through this medium? And how can we get people to pay us to tell those stories? So on the one hand, that since its beginning, that's been kind of like the guiding motivation behind mainstream filmmaking. That's still what, you know, Hollywood like thrives upon. How can we make profit out of like the stories that we already have under our copyright? But on the other hand, with every like just like in every art form, we had different filmmakers going in like almost like a fork path. On the one hand, we had like people who looked at this like potential of cinema of being able to record reality and that kind of like took us to the documentary realm and some forms of like experimental art which really focused on this camera's ability to capture what's going on as a reflection of what's going on outside of it but on the other hand there were those who took it as a new medium for like telling stories and those stories didn't have to relate one-on-one -on -one with real life. They could be surrealistic, they could be dreamlike, they could be fantastical, they could be hypothetical, right? So from the start for me, there were these two kind of like, I guess tendencies always work together, parallel to each other, sometimes intention, sometimes influencing one another. But I still feel like it's a dynamics that is inherent to all kind of filmmaking. On the one hand, the camera's ability to, to capture what's out there and what we can do with that. And on the other, how it can create, in a sense, a new reality. Um, and also like related to this is also like another kind of like bifurcation. On the one hand, you have like a more figurative approach to cinema, right? Um, the stories that you tell are kind of like, you know, coming from like the tradition of like classical theater. They're about characters, they're about plot, they're about the evolution of a certain like story to a climax and then a certain form of resolution. But on the other hand, we have those who ask about the conditions of storytelling itself and look at the medium itself as a new form of like 
reflecting on reality. So it's less about like trying to figure out what figures we're going to put on stage and more about like what are the conditions of putting a figure on the stage? What are the possibilities that open up when we organize the mise-en-scene a certain way and not the other? So with regards to film's relation to society, I feel like these are the tendencies that we still like, whether we're cognizant of them or not, that we still engage with every, every piece of life film. I'm wondering if there's a film or two that might illustrate how film has said something about society or people in society, how we live, that has enabled society to look at itself in a particular way and understand this, oh, this is who we are. And we hadn't really seen that uh, in this way. I had this kind of conversation without really being prompted by this story or this way of sharing a story to think about those things. So I'm I'm just wondering if there's an example or two of some films that illustrate what you're describing. Mm -hmm. This is kind of unfortunate, but the first example that comes to mind is not necessarily a film that I want to talk about, but it's Birth of a Nation, right? That's one of the early examples of film where, on the one hand, it has been super influential in terms of technical cinema making, right? But on the other hand, it's perhaps one of the most disastrous films ever made with regards to how society should be viewing itself. So in terms of, let's say, influential films, and this is unfortunate. I say it's unfortunate because you see that the history of the relationship between art and society has to go through these disastrous examples. But yeah, Birth of a Nation is one of those films where it became a very successful propaganda tool and had terrible effects till like decades after where it was taken as like some kind of iconic um, piece of art for racist ideologies. Um, switch back and try to think of another film that's not, that doesn't have to require us to like reiterate those horrors. I mean, a, a very recent example, I guess, is like Coda. And it speaks to like a lot of like current discussions on representation. So what kind of film do we have when the cast is like mostly hearing disabled? That film got a lot of good response back. It won the Oscar, right? And I believe that like just the recognition of that film as a film to be made in like 2020, I think that's the release date, if not 2021, is a good example of how there is still like an ongoing conversation between society and art. I think it's really interesting that you've pointed out that there is potentially some moral conundrums around film as a medium to share stories. So those two examples perhaps shine a light on the power of the moving image and the stories they tell to be propaganda or manipulative, and also the use of the same medium and the same content in telling stories to share something that is, I would hope, seen as morally more uplifting and shares a vision of how we could be. How do we guard against, as it were, the ill use of the medium as opposed to the good use of the medium, or or do we? I think the tools for that has to come like externally. I don't think they are internal to filmmaking. Godard has like a very known phrase like film is true to 24 frames per second. But then Michael Haneke, who's an Austrian director, kind of like reverses that phrase saying it's 24 lies per second in the service of truth. So the question of like illusion, let's say, or the question of like falsity, that is like embedded within the medium 
is not going to leave us. There is not going to be one perfect form of filmmaking that's finally going to like shred away like that like veil of illusion in front of our eyes. But I guess we are responsible as viewers to equip ourselves with the tools in which we are able to like read an image and see what's going on. And this can like, you know, tie into discussions of media literacy in general, which is a very important like tool to be accessed, I think, especially with the way that like images can be manipulated now. It's not even like about like what we can perceive or cannot perceive, but just being able to contextualize what we're seeing and then being able to make a judgment on that. Unfortunately, the medium itself will never be able to give us that. The role that you currently have at the moment with film streams as a community programming manager, part of what you're doing is also around education and it's about engaging the public in film as a medium to uh, share stories and have conversations about what it means to be a human, what it means to be in community. Would you talk a little bit more about what your role is and how you're trying to engage community through film with itself? So the gist of what I'm doing in the shortest possible uh, form is I put together events around film in collaboration with other organizations in our community. Um, But when you put it like that, it's very ambiguous as to what I actually do, and it could be anything. Um, What I try to do within the program is to make sure that we are programming films that not only like inform, but is also able to engage. Um, The kind of problem that we had, or like a lot of people have, when it comes to connecting film exhibition with community engagement is that usually people want to watch something informative and then let that just like speak for itself, right? Let's let's show a documentary on a certain subject and we'll add on to it with like certain like comments and that should be it. But I feel like it could be more powerful if you're able to bring in stories instead of just like, you know, information that will actually like make the audience think, go back to their own experience and come back with something more than what they are watching. I think that's why, even though I really, really love like documentary filmmaking, I also feel like for community engagement, it doesn't only have to be documentary filmmaking, that fiction film has the ability to connect to people in certain cases, like more strongly than like a documentary can, because people are able to go into that like identification structure that, you know, fiction film has because it tells a story rather than just like relaying information. Ultimately, I try to find the films that will speak to people who watch it and that will make them want to talk more about what's going on rather than just like taking information passively. For you, what is our obligation as viewers uh, in terms of approaching film? And how can we become better people, better humans by engaging with film? I'll start with recognizing the fact that the way that our society is organized actually makes it really hard for us to be those engaged viewers. Because for most people, it's about like selling the time of their day, the majority of the time that, that they have within a day for sustenance and then getting home and just not wanting to do anything else because they're exhausted. And that's what the entertainment industry usually like relies on. They'll give you something, you don't have to do anything for it, right? Passive consumption. And this is not to like shame anyone, I do it too. 
it's something that you almost need to like recuperate, right? To be able to like, you know, at least like go to bed with somewhat of like a relaxed mind. Um, so I think, yeah, this is just kind of like a caveat. Like it's hard to be engaged viewers within the system that we are, you know, like living in. But if we do have the, I guess, like the desire and the time and the interest, what we can do is to look at like every piece of media as if it's a teaching tool and look at the ways in which it is trying to like engage you. Because even like with stuff like, let's say your average TV show, the way that it is structured is not neutral. It is structured the way that it is because it has been, you know, let's say, quote unquote, tested to make sure that like you're going to be watching the next episode. You're going to be, you know, curious about like what comes next, that you're going to like endure through the commercials and like still be there on and on. Um, so I guess the first thing that we do is to like try to like evaluate what we watch by just looking at that, like how is it trying to like make me sit here and what am I actually giving them by sitting here? What are they like taking from me? You know, my attention, my time, perhaps like a certain like um, inclination of mine towards like the ideology that they endorse, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that would be the first tool. That would be the first way that we can engage with like media. And after that comes, if you want to like, you know, further it, there's so many, like my education in like film literacy is all personal. There is no academic, like I don't come from like a film academia. Like even with like my specialization in film theory comes out of personal interest because I, I was just fascinated and I started reading. So once, you know, you get over that threshold of like, recognizing the fact that most of the media that you watch is for your entertainment, which is another way in which the workday is like perpetuated, then there are like, there's just like a plethora of like knowledge out there that you can like grab and start learning. So for you, what was the first film that you remember seeing that moved you beyond entertainment, but made you think this is really challenging me or making me think, or it's sparking something in you that made you feel compelled to explore film? I don't know if it was the first one per se, but I was like 14, 15. And when I found David Lynch's films, I was blown away. Yeah, I think that might have been like my first kind of like engagement with like cinema that went beyond, this is great. Because <laughs> I was like, I, I want to do what he's doing, even though I didn't for like decades. <laughs> but I think, yeah, he's he's one influential figure in my own kind of like lineage, if I could say. On your website, you have a word cloud that captures in a visual way some of the key expressions that are appearing in the articles that you write on that website. And there are words that you would expect to see highlighted, such as film, world cinema. But at the second layer down, one of the words that popped out to me that seemed quite highlighted was the word horror. Is that, in hindsight, a surprise to you? Or do you have a particular interest in cinema and horror as a subject? It was a surprise to me even before the word cut. It was a surprise to me when I, so when I finally like sat down to like start writing stuff, that's, that's what was coming out. And I never been like a quote-unquote horror fan I was actually too scared for a very long time to watch horror films because they they affect me very like viscerally the surprise came from the fact that like 
the way that I was, I guess, digesting and uh, expressing my feelings and my experiences was through this genre of horror, even though it wasn't necessarily what I was engaging with as an audience member. I thought I would be writing, you know, indie dramas, <laughs> but that's not what's going on. <laughs> so I and it did make me like reflect on what, why, right? Um, and I guess it goes back to my interest in psychoanalysis and stuff like trauma and the way that like memory works and the way that we usually engage with things beyond our perception, whether we like it or not. So horror and mystery came to be the genres that I work with in my own work, but it was it was surprising and I still don't know why. You clearly think about film in a very conceptual, intelligent, deep way. But I love that you use the word visceral, how horror films affect you viscerally. And I'm just thinking about that juxtaposition between thinking about film with your head, but feeling a film sort of really deeply in the gut, which seems to be how film affects you. And, and maybe the curiosity about why those two things seem to be linked maybe is pulling at you in some way. It just might be. Because I know that like when I when I became a cinephile, <laughs> if I may say so, I don't want to sound pretentious, but when I really realized that like this, this thing is going to be the thing that saves me, like it really felt like that was when I was in my teens and, you know, going through, if it's not too personal to share, going through my first major depression, um, it really felt like, like I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do any coursework. I couldn't socialize. I, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't read. But I was able to watch films. And that's the period where I watched films like most intensely, I think. It felt like if anything was like gonna get me out, maybe it was gonna be film, because at least I still felt alive when I was watching them. And for anyone who's familiar with depression, that's the feeling you lack. You don't feel alive, you feel empty. and. With film, at least I felt like I was able to live somewhere beyond the screen, if that makes sense. You were born in Turkey, mm -hmm. Istanbul specifically. Yes. Would you share just a little bit about your childhood? What was that like and what stands out? There is not a lot to like talk about in terms of like major events. I'm the older of two siblings. What stands out from my childhood is like a love of like literature, love of film, love of solitude, actually, which kind of like went well with those two other things. And then, yeah, and then just trying to like get out of this um, certain impositions that my family had on me with regards to like what I should do in life. In Turkey, you kind of have to like choose your concentration in high school, whether you're going to like go into STEM or humanities or social sciences. And my parents were more like, real real jobs are in STEM, so you got to do that. And I was like, okay, um, well, you know, going to the conservatory, even though I had, you know, told them multiple times I'm not happy there. So just doing a lot of stuff that I didn't like doing, I think that was, they all culminated in that depressive episode when I was 16 and I was like, ready to like, just quit school and join the circus. And I'm not kidding, it was an actual plan. <laughs> Or, 
or go like work in the fields or something, which was again um, influenced by a film that I've seen, a little film called All About Lily Shushu. I still very distinctly remember a scene of this like teenager character in the rice fields with like headphones on, listening to the music of a fictional pop icon um, in Japan. Um, so I was like, yeah, that's that's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna go work in rice fields or join the circus or I don't even know, but I don't know. I guess they were able to arrange things with the school so they didn't kick me out. And um, my senior year, I was able to like prep for the um, university exams and get a good replacement um, placement. I don't know. It appears to me, having read some of your work and seen some of your work, and heard you talk before, that you're an intensely curious person about the world and about yourself. So I don't know if you look back on your childhood and see constraints that you were constantly pushing against with your imagination. It's a, like a loaded question. Like I'm not here to complain about my family. I feel like I'm too old to do that, if that makes sense. Like the mistakes of the past are in the past, you gotta move on. But I guess the particular challenge that I had was that this is not bragging, what, but whatever they wanted me to do, I could do it well. So they thought that I should do the things that would bring most success in life since I was able to do them. I was the good kid, so maybe I should have resisted more, but the little resistance that I had wasn't really effective. Um, I don't know if it was my imagination. I think I kind of like learned to like shut that down, unfortunately, like very early on believe it or not, depression was a way way out. And you are absolutely right in like recognizing the fact that like maybe one of the reasons why film was like so influential to me was I was able to see those characters breaking out, like the weird ones having uh, you know, like time on the screen. Um and that that felt helpful. That felt helpful and just made me finally be able to say, if not true words, but true, the way that my body was reacting. Like, this is not for me, please just like, let me go. And um, they were able to honor that. And then I went into sociology and philosophy instead of engineering. <laughs> Why did you choose sociology and philosophy? And you really focused on philosophy. So why are on, on that subject? It enabled me to ask questions that I wasn't able to like ask anywhere else. So I, I started with sociology. Um, I actually wanted to do psychology first, but it ended up being sociology. And I always been curious about, you know, the way that people work in the most general sense of the term and how structures and systems come to shape the way that we are, the, the, the like insignificant lives that we live and how they are connected to like a larger whole. Like the reason that made me shift towards philosophy is that with sociology we're still dealing with like very concrete facts and there's nothing wrong with that but philosophy enabled like if I was going to be able to ask any kind of metaphysical questions or existential questions which I still had that was only possible in that field I realized my questions were more theoretical than concrete not saying that sociology doesn't have that. There's always an internal investigation of the science within the science itself. But I felt more comfortable 
in this uh, secluded field of philosophy. And then, weirdly, I ended up writing my dissertation on a topic that is as concrete as it gets and is interdisciplinary. So it's kind of like a full circle now back to engaging with sociology and anthropology and history, even though I'm writing a dissertation in philosophy. We're still wrestling with similar questions. We still don't feel as if we have solid answers to concepts like what is good and what is bad? What is a good life? How should we live? What's the purpose of it all? How do we even know? These still remain pressing questions after 3,000 plus years. So it feels a little daunting to decide not to pursue subjects that have maybe something a little more concrete behind them, like psychology or sociology, um, and instead embrace something as nebulous and uncertain as philosophy. Does that really appeal to your sense of who you are, wrestling with those questions? And does it make you feel just a little pessimistic that you'll ever get to any kind of answer that is satisfying? The satisfaction is not in finding an ultimate answer, but in realizing that, like, actually, what philosophy does, and this is my final conviction about, I guess, this field, is not finding those truths that are hidden somewhere. I don't believe that there are hidden truths anywhere. But it's about the way in which we can exercise our minds to conceptualize what's out there to better understand. It, it's a certain form of creativity for me, philosophy, just like art is. And that's why I didn't feel like the switch between the two was like as major as it might have seen. Um, because my own questioning about what I was doing in graduate school was connected to the question of like, what does a philosopher do? What does an, an intellectual do? What does an academic do? What does a critic do? But a philosopher is someone who creates with concepts. And this I'm borrowing from a French philosopher, Gilles Deleuze. An academic is someone who works in academia. It's almost like tautological to say this, but it is a certain like industry of knowledge production and it has its own sets of rules and guidelines and expectations. And I didn't want to be one. And I realized that being an academic doesn't equal being an intellectual. And what does an intellectual do? I still don't have the answer to that question. It's a very hard question. And I think it's a very important question, especially like today. Like what is the role and responsibility of a public intellectual? Um, and then a critic, I guess that was the only thing that I felt like I was comfortable being to a certain extent. Because a critic, if they are doing their job the way that I think they should be doing, is a sort of certain kind of like mentor and decoder of like what's given to them and is able to like provide the reading of what's given to them. So I've been able to be that a little bit. I wanted to ask you about the film, Knots. What's the film about before we start describing what you're trying to say? Um, so this is the first feature film that I wrote and that I am in the process of um, getting filmed, hopefully, later in 2023. Knots is about a mathematics graduate student who is dealing with a proof that she has to submit to her committee to advance in her um, degree. While she's dealing with that, she also meets someone and gets really enchanted by them but is not really sure if they exist or not because this person keeps on disappearing um, without any kind of reasonable explanation. 
so the story is about this young woman's journey in trying to figure out what is happening to her with this person while she tries to figure out the solution to the proof or the proof that she's working on. The idea for me behind the story is like, what do we do? What kind of process can we engage in when the truth that we are seeking does not have evidential, concrete basis that we can grapple with? So that's something that happens in mathematics, any kind of like conceptual science where you do not go out into the real world to like look at different points of like data and analyze them and come up to a conclusion. You have to work with concepts, which are weird things because on the one hand, they are constructions of the mind. On the other hand, they weirdly correspond to the real world when you put them into calculations. So it's on the one hand, it's an epistemological question, right? about accessibility of truth, when that truth itself is theoretical truth. But it also connects with the way in which our psyches, our our internal minds also work this way, because we do not have that kind of access to what we have experienced, even though we might be feeling the symptoms. When it comes to something like trauma or repressed trauma, we would be dealing with erased or repressed memories that are not accessible for us to be able to say, oh, I know why I'm feeling like this. It's because this has happened. So it's a, the story is kind of like a, I guess, intersection for me of those two different epistemological questions, one on like a more psychological, psychoanalytical side and the other on a more like conceptual pure science side. How are you thinking about using film as a medium why are you choosing film as a medium? I realize that I, when it comes to like fictional stories like these, I think in images, not necessarily words. I think that's one of the um, distinguishing facts about like different forms of art is like, what are its building blocks, right? With literature, we are talk- thinking about words, syntax, grammar, etc. With like painting, we're thinking about lines, colors, composition, music, notes, harmony, etc. With film, it's moving images. And when I think of a story, when a scene comes up in my mind, or something like elicits a certain, you know, feeling in me that is going to be like translated into like another like scenario, it's always through images. I believe that's because my informal education is, is in film. I haven't um, engaged with any other art form as much as I engaged with film. And maybe I have an inclination for it. I don't know if I'll be good to translate what's in my head to like what's on the screen. That's a completely different exercise. Are you making this film, sharing this film, so that you can inform yourself? Or are you making it to challenge and inform the viewer? It started with, I guess, some kind of like exorcism, self-exorcism of sorts. Um, You know, with the pandemic, I'm sure a lot of us experience like untasty, like past experiences, just like research, um, traumas research, like just like remembering the things that like left a mark on you, but you didn't want to dwell on that much. So for me, there was a particular experience that was like that, which I wasn't even able to name for a long time, which re- resurfaced through the during the pandemic. 
So the script mostly came out of that. Um, it wasn't like, oh, I got to write the story. What can I write about kind of thing? It was like, okay, this is just like coming out and I got to I gotta put it out somewhere. So it started out like that. But then as it evolved, you know, beyond, you know, like the first draft, I realized that the main value in getting this out into the world, it's not about me, but it's about maybe like creating something where people who might have felt like me recognize themselves in it. Maybe being able to like name something that they haven't been able to name before um, and feel a certain form of like indirect support of like what they have gone through because it has been hard to talk about it. I know like I'm like being very ambiguous about what that experience is, but it's something hard to talk about. So I would rather not mention it right now, but that that's, that's kind of been what motivates me at this point. And if I was to ask anyone anything, it would be on that basis. Like you don't have to, you know, care about my story per se. And actually I don't care if you care about my story because I don't know what good that is, but I would want you to like care about its potential of like helping others see themselves. You have shared your life and some of the issues that have been on your mind and you've talked about aspects of what you're doing now to consider and explore some of those questions. I don't know how old you are, but it would seem to me that you have uh, most of your life ahead of you, which means a lot more questioning to yeah. do. And I wonder if you can see around the corner a little bit about what do you think are those challenges or questions that will occupy you in the future? So one thing that already occupies me is my involvement with like more direct activism, because that was something that I did, like that was something that was ingrained in me in college. And later, even in the US, I wanted, I wanted to be like part of like groups that were actively involved in like social and political causes. And I don't know if it was because of cultural differences. I don't know what it was. Certain mishaps about the way that we even envision organizing. I got burned out pretty quickly. And, you know, when I did get burned out, like you, you don't, you, you gotta self-preserve. So I had to literally like hand in my keys and say, guys, please take over. I literally cannot anymore. Cause it felt like I don't know what it felt like. It felt like I was doing a lot, but not seeing results. And it wasn't because I was impatient, but it was maybe I wasn't able to like, it's still a question to me. How do we motivate people to go against the routine, right? Like, and this is a question for me too. Like we work so much and we have limited free time. If you want to use that free time to, to like be the agents of some certain kind of like change, how do we motivate ourselves? Because no one's going to pay us to do that. Like there needs to be like internal kind of like motivation for it. Maybe external in the sense of like camaraderie or like, you know, feelings of solidarity. But at the end of the day, people get tired. Um, people fall out. Um, people move. People, you know, have children, etc., etc. So that was like something that I was already thinking about. Like how do we, how do we motivate our, is it even possible to enact change when the main structuring of our days are like this. 
And I think I got burned out also because of that, because I didn't know how to ask people to be there when they didn't feel like they had the time to be there. Um, so for the future too, it's still something on my mind. There's a part of me that really wants to go back and like really just like dive in, you know, into an organization for a cause that I believe in. But I still don't know if I'm confident to do that without like running into the same challenges that I did. And also with like, you know, working with people here who have different assumptions and expectations, I think, than the people that I'm used to working back home. So born and raised in Istanbul, uh, you come to uh, America. I'm not entirely sure of your various journeys, but I know that you were studying and working in Chicago and recently moved to Omaha. Mm -hmm. So a variety of different cultural contexts and traditions. I'm curious how you have been informed in your thinking and feeling by those different cultural contexts. There is a saying, I don't know where I read it, it's been a while, and it's kind of like cliche, it's kind of like reductive, but I feel like I still like it. So it goes something like, in the East, there is intimacy without friendship. In the West, there is friendship without intimacy. And what it basically means is that the, like the culture that I'm used to is that you are not scared to share a lot. You're not scared to be vulnerable. Um, you're not scared to like form like really like close bonds with people. But that sometimes feels very, very suppressive because you don't want to do that with everyone that you meet. You don't want to do that with like your taxi driver or like the lady sitting next to you on the bus, but it can be, it can happen. So intimacy without friendship, like those like very, very like, you know, deep bonds trying to be like created without like the kind of like social support beneath them. And I recognize this is like reductive. So everyone just be patient. And in the West, friendship without intimacy. And I think that was like the thing that I was like, that got confirmed for me when I, you know, when I traveled into Europe, but also when I moved here. Chicago is still Midwest, Omaha is Midwest. A specific Midwest culture that I, I, I feel like I'm pretty like familiar with is that everyone is nice, everyone is super friendly, everyone will ask you how your day is. No one is gonna follow up to like actually like, you know, if they invited you out for coffee. In Turkey, that's an invite. You go, like you have to go, you're bound now. It's a promise, right? Here, it's it's a nicety. So my, yeah, I would say being here, living here, like one of the first challenges was that like feeling of like, just like bumping into the walls of like individualism. Like I never did back home and I'm not saying, you know, there are no, there is no individualism where I come from. There is, but with the 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 walls are like higher and um, the concrete is like stronger. So that's what I got adjusted to. Okay, don't take it personally. This is what the culture is here. Um, the other thing that I guess I was adjusted to was academic life. When I'm off work hours, I don't like to talk about work. Um, but a lot of people in academia would like to continue those conversations outside of the campus. And because I want intimacy, <laughs> it, it wasn't working. 
um and i'm not saying that's a healthy way to bond but it's just what i was like used to um i feel i'm pretty adjusted at this point um doesn't feel like a challenge anymore i definitely changed a lot during teaching i don't think in a good way but i i learned skills of like being customer facing because in u.s higher education is unfortunately a service that's not public most of the time i have like better public speaking skills thanks to it i think but one of the reasons why i kind of like didn't want to like pursue that path was i felt like a part of me was changing and i didn't want it to change even further there's something on your website where you describe yourself and you talk about being guided by justice and compassion as well as creativity and i thought that was quite a striking observation and i wonder what that means to you where where do those values come from and what was it that prompted you to maybe assert that more overtly okay so when we talk about ethics and look at like the history of like ethics and philosophy um nietzsche is a figure that had like major influence on what came to be like the ethics of the 20th century as he was one of the iconoclasts basically telling us yes there is no meaning to any of this basically follow your best instincts try to become the best version of who you are and that involves like constant reinvention and with that also came like the toppling of any kind of like ethical ideals right going back to like the beginnings of like western philosophy ideas like justice or goodness that are universal that will never go away that come to like influence us but things that we can never influence because they're already pure so my formation obviously goes through this like you know absolute questioning of all morals and all ideals right so for anyone who has been influenced by nietzsche marx freud which i have been very much it's kind of like almost funny to talk about something like justice as if it's as if it still stays up there over the clouds but i have never been able to like let go of that ideal even in my most like you know cynical phases for some reason i don't need to psychoanalyze myself but for me if we're going to be living a good life justice which basically means doing right to others is always going to be a guiding principle for me and maybe it's because i always seen like it's it's all around us we are living in an unjust world and that justice is not only an ideal but goes with compassion in the sense that like just like you know feeling viscerally when you watch a horror film like for me it has always been like really hard not to be affected by what's around me by what feels wrong and compassion was the name that i gave to that feeling like at one point in my life and this is like very recent as i was leaving academia i decided again i may be from like a nichian kind of like inclination that the life to live has to be aesthetic aesthetic not in the sense of like just being concerned with art but aesthetic in the sense of like being concerned with experience and looking at like how experience is like molded and how we can create better experiences not only for ourselves but for everyone around us so my final conviction about like ethics became this kind of like aesthetic 
conviction, which is like justice goes with compassion because feelings and experience go with like ethical ideals. And that's how I want to live with my life and mix all of that with creativity if I can. I don't want to suppose that you would ever tell people how they should live. Nonetheless, because we're having a conversation about these issues, what is a good life? How do you think a listener might benefit from thinking about philosophical, aesthetic, or other approaches to living a good life if we can take some steps towards understanding what that is? Such a hard question. For me, like, maybe just like the first thing that comes to mind is stop before you justify the pain of others. I think, like, the way in which, like, we are able to, like, go through life semi-sanely, even though there's so much pain around us, is that we learn to justify it, we learn to excuse it. Sometimes we have to, we, we do it for ourselves, so why not do it for others, right? You gotta almost like choose what you get to be sad for or what you get to be like en- enraged about. But this, this is literally the first time this is coming out of my mouth in this formulation, but yeah. See where pain is and stop for a minute before you justify it and see if there is actually a different configuration of the world in which that pain doesn't exist. One of the ways that we are like hindered in not living the best life that we could live as a community, not as individuals. We are always like given reasons where we can just say it couldn't have been otherwise which is a certain kind of um, castration of the imagination, right? It's a certain kind of fallacy. Just because things are the way that they are, they have to be the way that they are. So I guess, yeah, another thing to add to that first point would be, no, try to like reverse that castration and like try to like imagine how things could be instead of how they are. What other way could this be and what can I do to make it so that it's not like this? My guest today has been Bill Gessu-Sisman, philosopher, cinephile, filmmaker and community programming manager at Filmstreams. Thank you so much for being on the show. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Stuart, for having me. I really enjoyed it, too. You are not going to have the answer to the meaning of everything, then. Oh, I wasn't counting on it. We maybe should have warned (laughs) listeners at the top that that was not going to be the case. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.